I'm Afshindra Tansi, and welcome back to Going Underground, broadcasting all around the world from COP28 host the UAE, which at the UN Security Council has forced the issue of a ceasefire amidst the UK-US-EU nation-backed alleged Gaza genocide. While thousands have been killed in Gaza and near Jerusalem, hundreds of thousands may be killed through excess deaths in Europe this winter. Energy is arguably key then in Gaza at COP28 and the OPEC Plus meeting where GCC countries, plus Russia, Iran, Venezuela and others, have so far refused NATO nation calls to pump more oil. Joining me now from one of the world's biggest carbon emitter cities, New York City, is Abby Rajendran, the head of global oil markets and research at Energy Intelligence and adjunct research scholar at Columbia University Center on global energy policy. Abby, thanks so much for coming back on. So we've had Nord Stream, we've had uh, Saudi Arabia refusing to pump more oil along with OPEC Plus members. And uh, presumably markets already realize that uh, uh, the numbers killed in uh, winter in Western Europe won't be, won't be uh, even more than in, uh, well, it will be more, but it won't be uh, even more than in, uh, in Gaza. Yeah, first, thanks for having me. Um, certainly a lot going on in the in the world of energy, uh, you know, between you know, oil and gas markets and, and of course, geopolitics kind of stuck in, in between all of it. Uh, you know, we're also, you know, kind of going through this roller coaster, uh, you know, within the year where we've had a pretty hot summer, uh, you know, not just temperature wise, but in terms of demand and consumption, um, you know, things are kind of cooling off as they typically do at, at, at this time of the year. Um, and but you know, but a lot of uncertainty, you know, looking to the end of the year and, uh, and ahead to 2024 for sure. But yet, there's no increase in oil prices. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, in November seasonally is is always, you know, is typically the the not always, but typically the worst month for oil prices. Uh, so in some sense, this is not surprising. depending on who you are, uh, of course. <laughs> Depending on who you yeah. are, yeah. It, 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 the best about the, the absolute oil price, yeah. It, it, it's always a, uh, you know, a tough month uh, to get the price to go up. It's typically a month where the price goes down, uh, and there's always some drama, uh, you know, with not always, but usually some drama uh, with, with OPEC Plus heading into Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, so there's that as well. But all those countries that didn't want a ceasefire are clearly confident that there wasn't going to be a wider conflagration that would affect oil prices. I mean, they were confidently saying, we don't want a ceasefire, all these children are dying, it's fine, they're all being killed, in terms of its effect, boomerang impact on the economies of Western Europe and the United States. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, the the, the conflict and the situation is is obviously, uh, you know, pretty, pretty dire and, 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 and tragic in many ways. Um, you know, since the early days, you know, after October 7th, what we were looking for is, is what you just mentioned, which is, you know, the possibility of a, an expansion of the uh, of the conflict, you know, pulling in other countries, pulling in, uh, you know, Hezbollah from the north, uh, you know, pulling in Iran in particular directly into the conflict, uh, both with Israel, but but also, you know, kind of related to some of the other, uh, you know, countries in the, in the region. Uh, you know, that never happened, right? And I think, you know, as every week went by, it was increasingly clear that, you know, Iran, while it may have been indirectly involved in, in, in sparking the conflict, you know, directly did not want to get involved. And, and even with 
with Hezbollah and others, you know, that 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 never really, uh, you know, kind of um, uh, got worse. Um, and even, you know, even, you know, the U.S. And, and, and other, you know, kind of Israel allies were pretty keen on keeping Iran in particular out of it. And so from a supply standpoint, we haven't really seen much of a disruption. Uh, you know, there was obviously that kind of that initial concern and worry and spike in oil prices. That all kind of quickly evaporated, and then we're kind of back down to you know to typical November seasonality. So it was a big fact. I mean, obviously the conflict began decades ago in in the 1940s, but uh, it was a, clearly that uh, Iran, which um, denied any involvement in October 7th, said uh, they they could be a big impact. I mean, I saw senior Israeli officials were quoted as saying Israel wants the USA to diplomatically work to pressure Hezbollah to withdraw its uh, uh, troops from the Al Radwan. Um, unit on the uh, on the outskirts of the Golan Heights. Clearly the United States, I don't know what connections they have with Hezbollah, but clearly Iran was the big energy factor here. Yeah, that's right. You know, Iran was the big energy factor. Uh, I think everybody was, uh, you, you know, it seemed like every side, you know, kind of wanted to, to stay out of it and, and not really get involved in, in, in kind of escalating the crisis. And that, you know, and that Took the air out of oil prices. It, it kind of calmed the market down, even just kind of from a, you know, from the standpoint of equity markets and other markets that were a little bit, you know, uneasy about the conflict in the beginning. But uh, you know, everything just kind of calmed down, and and obviously it's not, you know, sort of de-escalated. Uh, in any way, but it has not, you know, kind of become a broader regional issue, uh, which is what we were looking for to see if there was but, actually going to be a you know, supply impact. But if it hasn't had an impact directly on the on the graphs of uh, Brent and uh, Nymex, it, over the dead bodies of these thousands of children, Biden sent his energy security advisor Amos Hochstein to Israel while all this was happening. I mean, I, in one way, I've got to ask why. Um, uh, the United States doesn't want higher oil prices because it is a net exporter. But in another way, what on earth was he doing there and why were the Israeli papers talking about tons of gas in Gaza while we were watching the pictures of all these uh, murdered children? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I think, you know, I think there are both oil and gas, uh, you know, kind of issues at play. I think from the, you know, from the U.S. standpoint, the, you know, the focus, you know, has been on two key things. One is not letting the situation escalate and finding, you know, sort of off ramps, finding some, you know, some middle grounds where hostages and other things could be, uh, could be negotiated. That's, that's. You mean, you know, not escalate, I mean, obviously it's escalated because every day hundreds more children were being killed. You mean not escalate geographically. It was contained within the uh, two million people living in the besieged Gaza Strip. Right, and then also try to find a way to kind of come up with, you know, with with, with some ways to uh, address the civilian casualty situation, address the hostage situation, uh, to, to find some middle ground from from all sides. And I think the second point is directly, you know, tied to energy, right? I mean, I think this this administration is is very is hypersensitive about energy prices because of the general with the presidential election. You mean? Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and you know, it's it's holiday season. You know, a lot of folks are traveling. It's, it's kind of an important you know time of the year. Uh, so there's that. And then, of course, looking ahead to 2024, right? We don't want, you know, we don't want this to turn into a big, you know, broader regional issue. And then you have 100, 110 type, you know, type of dollar oil prices like you had last year. Uh, you know, when the Russia-Ukraine conflict first broke out. So so definitely wanting to avoid that. Now, what's interesting is on the oil side, you never really had a supply disruption. On the natural gas side. Uh, you did right. Uh, Israel shut down the Tamar field. Um, that you know that had a you know a knock-on effect. 
uh, to Egypt and and and, and, and other areas. Um, you know, that was another thing that's kind of been you know partially reversed uh, in, in in recent weeks. Um, that was also part of the you know part of the the, the discussion. You know, part of the the focus. Just on remind the us where this LNG comes from. It passes through Israel, and they shut it down after October seventh to Egypt. Uh, that's right. So, so the gas is uh, is an offshore field uh, uh, off of the uh, off of Israel. Uh, some of that gas passes into Israel. Some of it actually goes into Egypt, which gets re-exported out of Egypt. Some of it gets consumed domestically in Egypt, and some of it gets re-exported out. And so that was shut down for a couple of weeks, um, and, and you know is now back on. Uh, so that was you know that was that, that was also part of it. Why why does Egypt need the LNG off of the coast of Palestine or Israel, or the occupied territories? Can't it get it? Elsewhere, why is it collaborating so closely with a government that, on paper, they say they disagree with the uh, alleged Gaza genocide about? Yeah, I mean, one, they can't really get it anywhere else. Uh, two, yeah, I mean, this was a project that was kind of, you know, co-developed and and, and co-commercialized, uh, you know, and then Egypt was an outlet for for that gas. You know, that, that gas getting developed, um, you know, Egypt was was kind of an outlet for for getting that uh, gas. Uh, you know, a home, uh, you know, through LNG exports to to Europe and other sources. So, um, so you know that that you know is kind of a commercial business decision that they came about over many years, uh, and you know, and and you know, and then we'll kind of see. We'll we'll see to your point. Uh, you know, obviously there's there's kind of this big pushback against the you know kind of the the civilian uh, situation in, in in Gaza. We'll see what the future of that relationship looks like. Yeah, it seems strange to be talking about. Uh, oil revenues, future revenues, which was reported in Israeli press from uh, energy resources, given there are people probably dying tonight, children dying tonight because of the cold in Gaza who can't heat them, their homes. What exactly is the extent of energy reserves in this area where people can't heat themselves tonight? Uh, I mean... Uh, is it, uh, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars worth, billions of dollars worth of gas from Gaza? I mean, you know, from a reserve, pure reserve standpoint, there are billions of dollars of, of, of gas there. I think the likelihood of it, but anytime soon getting commercialized, right? You know, you kind of have to go through the the process of bringing in, uh, you know, operators who'd be interested in developing these resources, you know, figuring out, you know, the, the partnerships, the revenue sharing with, you know, local government and things like that. Uh, all of that, you know, seems like, you know, very, very distant, um, uh, you know, type of potential situation. I mean, BP's you know, from, from lease runs from... out. I saw reports about uh, BP's uh, lease on uh, exploration rights, I understand. Yeah, so they run out. I mean, that's the thing, right? I, I think the the producers, the operators, you know, need to kind of see political stability. They need to, you know, see... Uh, you know, kind of a, a security situation that's stable. They're not, you know, obviously now things are, uh, you know, quite uh, uh, messy. But you know, they're not they're not likely to kind of change. But then, their but then why did, why was this guy being sent there then, Amos Hochstein? I mean, he he worked in Texas gas mar markets. You'd expect proper diplomats to be visiting uh, Israel uh, to discuss the alleged genocide, not oil people, the main um, energy advisor to the Biden administration being sent amidst all the uh, all the killing. What, what was he there for then? Well, I mean, he, you know, he's been, you know, Amos has been, a, you know, a diplomat that, you know, has 
gotten quite a few deep relationships in the region. He's been to the region and worked there many times uh, under this administration over the last uh, you know couple of years. Uh, you know, and and even kind of predating this administration. You know, he's been there. You know, he's got you know kind of. Uh, a relationship, you know, forget about Israel, but but he's spent a significant amount of time in, in Saudi Arabia, you know, to, to your point, in, in the Emirates and in other parts. So, um, you know, so leveraging those relationships, you know, and again, trying to, you know, I think it's less about energy and more about you know, trying to find some off ramps here to the situation uh, is his role. And of course, you know, there's there's an energy piece to it as well. Um, you know, given that the, the disruptions have been quite minor, um, I think I think it's really kind of more on the on the security, uh, you know, and and and, and stability side. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, from from you know from an American standpoint, uh, sending Amos there, you know, kind of makes sense. And you know, given that you know energy is pretty you know tied into this whole situation in the region, um, you know, having some of that expertise does help. Abhi Rajendran, I'll stop you there. More from the head of global oil markets and research at Energy Intelligence after this break. Welcome back to Going Underground. I'm still here with the head of global oil markets and research at Energy Intelligence, Abhi Rajendran. Abby, we were talking about the uh, conflict getting uh, bigger and that might uh, affect energy prices, which it hasn't so far. Does that mean that uh, given uh, in the Lebanese context we've heard uh, Iran say, well, it's up to Lebanon what it wants to do, the control of energy markets in a sense across the world depends on what happens in South Lebanon? Yeah, you know, we we, we do, you know we talked about this briefly before. I think that is you know sort of your your spark to a you know potentially bigger conflict, right? And I think uh, obviously from you know uh, U.S. or Israel or you know allied side, they don't want that. But it doesn't really seem like the you know the the Hezbollah and you know kind of the the you know indirectly through Iran side really wants that either. Um, you know, we've been watching this closely for. Uh, you know, for you know, nearly two months now, uh, it doesn't really seem like there's any sort of, you know, imminent, you know, mobilization to a bigger threat. Now, the Biden administration certainly hasn't been happy about previous OPEC Plus meetings. Anthony Blinken being sent to beg uh, Saudi Arabia to increase production and so on. We had expected the OPEC Plus meeting uh, this week. What do you think's behind the postponing of? Uh, such an important, such a critical uh, OPEC Plus uh, meeting, uh, albeit around the time of COP28 as well here in Dubai. Yeah, interesting timing. The meeting, you know, getting uh, delayed to the start date of of, of COP28. So that's obviously going to be a interesting clash of messages. But uh, you know, well, in, in fairness, I'd be surely cutting production is good for the environment. <laughs> well, and but also has issues, you know, has a knock-on effect on prices and inflation, and you know, and, and investment in that new energy too, right? So, so it, it does cut both ways. Um, you know, I think I think with OPEC Plus, look, I, I think the they have, you know, sort of two key, you know, messy issues to work through. The first is that you know Saudi Arabia has kind of taken the burden of of, of cutting uh, on behalf of the group um you know disproportionately uh while that has happened uh you know you've had one uh 
you know, some, you know, some pretty unreliable compliance from Russia, uh, which is the, you know, the, the other big country that matters. You've had a big ramp up in production from Iran. Uh, and you've had, you know, it's kind of a slow, steady ramp up from, you know, production. Where do you, from Abby, when you're like analyzing all this, where do you get the figures from? Because as you imply there, there's a gray market now for oil ever since yeah. the self-sanctioning of European governments and the sanctioning in the United States. Have you ever seen uh, statistics in such a malaise as they are right now when it comes to oil production, oil transportation, oil services generally, given no one seems to know who's selling, who's buying, and what price they're buying and selling at? Yeah, so I mean, we are, you know, we are one, an official secondary source of OPEC at, at Energy Intelligence. Uh, you know, we, we, you know, we've got, you know, over 100 folks who are boots on the ground who talk to traders, shippers, um, other folks who are in the oil industry, uh, you know, from end to end. And so we try to, you know, kind of piece together a lot of this story ourselves and get our own. Well, wait, 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 in secret meetings by the dock side. Because they can't say it. No, I mean we've public. got you know we've got our sources, right? I mean we've got folks on the dock side that we can pick up the phone and call. We've got folks you know on the ships that we can pick up the phone and call. We've got folks you know who are signing the papers for you know for these sanctions and price caps and things like that who are who are contact. So uh, so so my colleagues you know do a you know a great job you know kind of digging up as much information as they can, right? I mean as you mentioned there is a great market, there is some uh, you know opacity in in the information, but we try to kind of piece it together as much as we can. We you know we produce monthly stats on uh, on every country's production exports uh you know including you know what we see as you know kind of gray market you know black market type of volumes so we try to account for all of that uh you know in, into our intelligence right into our you know kind of our, our bigger picture look at what's going on in oil markets in terms of a supply demand prices and whatnot and this is actually and, and we feed this into OPEC itself it's it's one of the inputs that they use uh, when they go into big decisions like this and you know i think from what they're seeing it's kind of in line with what we're seeing is that there's a lot of you know kind of you know choppy compliance there's a lot of you know uh you know countries that are you know ramping up production you know there's some cheating here and there uh and that's you know part of the delay so there's going to have to be some official production cuts announced at the next opex plus uh meeting given this environment I would say, uh, you know, our expectation is, you know, nothing, you know, no, no official, I mean, we have official production cuts now. I think we were going to have to, one, see a better focus on compliance, uh, you know, kind of reining in some of those producers that have, um, you know, that have been, you know, kind of leaking volumes as Saudi Arabia has taken away volumes back into the market. Uh, and I think the second piece is, uh, which we, which which I didn't mention, was, was you know, some of the smaller OPEC plus countries uh, you know, are pushing back on their production quotas. They're saying it's too low, it needs to be higher. That's another piece, you know, again, these are smaller member states, not the big ones. That's another thing that needs to be addressed at this meeting. But, you know, this meeting really is about, you know, Saudi Arabia taking the, you know, the, the burden of this production cuts, having to kind of rein in some of these producers that are, you know, kind of doing their own thing, you know, otherwise, you know, sort of threatening that, you know, that they're going to unwind their cuts and then everybody loses uh, with lower prices as a result. Because Saudi Arabia very vocal about calling for an arms embargo against Israel. And of course, uh, the amount of military weaponry and so on in the Eastern Mediterranean using vital uh, energy resources must have some kind of impact, doesn't it? Uh, the largest armadas in history, one of them Biden has sent to the Eastern Mediterranean. All these warplanes, aircraft carriers, military uh, equipment sent there and to the South China Sea. Isn't that affecting energy prices at all? 
Um, I think the answer to your question is not really, uh, uh, basically not at all. I think the, obviously, you know, there is this, you know, there is this big, you know, kind of pushback against, you know, the, the uh, you know, the Israeli response and, and, and the situation in Gaza. Um, but at the same time, I think there's a lot of, you know, kind of back channeling going on, uh, you know, within the, you know, the, the Arab world. Um, but also, you know, kind of, you know, maybe through Qatar and, and, and other sources, you know, between, uh, you know, the West and uh, countries like Saudi Arabia in particular, on, on how to sort of prevent the situation from getting worse and then finding off ramps to, uh, you know, to, to, to maybe, you know, and, and again, you know, it's unlikely that, you know, some permanent ceasefire is going to happen anytime soon, but, uh, you know, but at least we have some, you know, some, some, some temporary ones that are taking shape now. Uh, to you know to to sort out hostages and things like that. So I you know I think yes sure sure you know there's a, there's a question of you know arming Israel and things like that. But uh, more you know more broadly I think the the concern is about um, containing the situation and not letting it get you know into a bigger regional conflict. I think many people uh, might have been surprised by how quickly the uh, after Biden said Nord Stream would end and stop. And of course, it was destroyed allegedly by the Biden administration. We saw LNG terminals start popping up in Western Europe so quickly. We know hundreds of thousands of people, poor people die in Western Europe uh, in terms of excess deaths. Do you think uh, the United States will be filling in that gap on uh, LNG to stabilize prices uh, this winter for Western Europe? Yeah, I mean, you know, the United States has been the number one kind of stopgap for 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 missing gas volumes for for Europe. Uh, uh, you know, over the last couple of years, actually, you know, actually even predating the the Russia Ukraine situation, Europe had a gas crisis uh, back in twenty twenty one. So this, this was is not fracked even... gas, right, from Texas Correct, and yeah. so on, yeah, from, in from violation of what COP COP twenty eight talks about. Yeah, you know, for for the most part, um, uh, shale gas, yeah, for uh, you know, fracked shale gas. But uh, you know that this is this is what Europe needs. Uh, and and despite you know some of the kind of gaps being filled from the U.S. and you know maybe from Qatar and other sources, uh, you know, Europe more broadly, uh, but but certainly in particular in countries like Germany, uh, continues to deindustrialize. Right? They they you know they have. Uh, massive issues in you know in key industries like chemicals, agriculture, uh, fertilizers, and 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 in other areas. Um, because even with you know some of the the, the gas gaps being filled, uh, they are short of energy, or they're finding energy that's too expensive. To that's, cl that's clearly not what the Schultz government says. They say they're doing uh, fine. Uh, their coalition and uh, the self the sanctions uh, was a great uh, great policy after the uh, Ukraine conflict now winding down, arguably. Yeah, the Schultz government is not a very popular government these days. So I'll, <laughs> I'll just let the, like the German people, uh, you know, make a decision on that one. <laughs> and and uh, uh, so so you're saying that things are going to be really tough then on Western Europe, given the decisions they've been making, unless they change their sanctions policy then. Yeah, things are going to be tough. I mean, you know, as always, you know, especially in, in you know winter seasons, it kind of depends on how cold the winter is, you know, Europe, you know, kind of got off with a relatively uh, easy winter uh, last year, um, but that's, you know, every year could be different. This year we've had, you know, El Nino, La Nina, and all kinds of other, you know, kind of extreme weather uh, effects, uh, you know, that, that that can kind of change things. So, so you know, Europe, you know, is is still, you know, kind of in an uncertain place. Yes, they have basically full gas reserves, right, or gas inventories, uh, but, you know, but, you know, how that looks, 
uh, you know, in a couple of months, you know, in, in March, April, uh, you know, will be a key data point to watch. So if it's a very severe winter, can your organization estimate how much uh, the sanctions are having in terms of effect, how many people are being killed effectively in uh, Western Europe by the sanctions if there's a severe winter? Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty tough number to, to come by. If, if Europe has a cold winter this winter, I think they'll be okay because they do have, you know, kind of uh, inventories that are over and beyond even, you know, kind of normal winter levels. So I think this winter they'll be okay. Uh, I think the, the question then becomes uh, if, they, if they have to draw down those inventories again, you know, into the spring months, uh, you know, what, what impact does that have for, for them next year? Again, they'll have to go back and buy expensive gas, expensive LNG imports, uh, you know, or, you know, kind of keep those manufacturing and other sectors muted, uh, you know, and not allow the demand to come back too much uh, to, to be able to maintain enough supply. And just uh, finally, uh, the expansion of uh, EV electrical vehicles. We expect uh, massive uh, mining expansion of minerals that uh, help, help uh, to power the batteries of all these electrical vehicles in the global south, in Africa, in Latin America, and so on. So two things are happening in the kind of the EV kind of electrification world. I think one, you're kind of seeing a, you know, a little bit of a, a an adjustment process in the adoption curve for for EVs. Um, in our view, you're kind of China is doing better than expected. Um, Europe is doing about as, as as well as expected in terms of its EV adoption. Uh, but the biggest car market in the world, the U.S., is going much slower uh, than than many expected. Uh, so there's a lot of, you know, kind of moving parts in the electric world. And because of that, a lot of, you know, prices for some of these metals and minerals and, and other uh, materials that you mentioned uh, have come down quite a bit. Lithium, graphite, you know, cobalt and other things, um, you know, and, and you know, there's kind of this realignment going on on the demand and supply side. Uh, yes, you will need a lot more mining. You're, you're going to need a lot more extraction and processing, uh, you know, for batteries and, and, and other inputs into EVs. Um, over the next you know decade, decade and beyond, uh, as these prices come down, that has an effect on the the timing of supply. Things get pushed out, delayed, uh, but it also has an effect on maybe you know spurring demand a little bit because prices are lower, cars are cheaper than they were you know a year or two years ago. Um, so we're going to kind of see this cat and mouse play out over the next several years. I think um, you know I think we're finding generally that. Uh, you know, EV adoption curves are going about as well as we expected, but, um, you know, overall, but but slower than many did. You know, we've kind of addressed some of the low-hanging fruit, uh, but once you kind of get into mass adoption, uh, you know, that gets harder just because of all the kind of the the, the consumer uh, preferences and other things that that you have to work through. So so that's kind of where we are with, with, with EVs will be a key thing to watch over the next couple of years. Abby Rajendran, thank you. Thanks for having me. And that's it for the show. We'll be back on Monday to talk to the U.S. government's former chief economist at the Department of Agriculture, Joseph Glober, about why hundreds of millions are still facing a food crisis in a world full of food. Until then, keep in touch via all our social media. If it's not censored in your country, and head to our channel, Going Underground TV on Rumble.com, to watch new and old episodes of Going Underground. See you Monday.